Hello and welcome to the Elevate Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Rob Harden-Anderson. I am, I am the fitness and wellness manager at the resort in Playa Vista. I work for Elevation Corporate Health and in each episode of this podcast, I'm going to be having a conversation with folks from all different walks of life about how to elevate yourself. It is my hope that these conversations will make you think, force you to change your best, and as a result, help you get a little bit closer to becoming the best version of you. As I mentioned, I work for Elevation Corporate Health. We've been in the health business for over 26 years. We manage customizable fitness and wellness centers all across the country. You can learn more about us at elevationcorporatehealth.com. Uh, the resort at Playa Vista that uh, I'm the fitness and wellness manager of is a, a state-of-the-art fitness center. 11,000 residents of Playa Vista have access to our facilities. We offer personal training, group fitness classes, nutrition and wellness coaching, and you can follow us on social media at Playa Vista Resort. And today on the show, I am excited to welcome Mark Stabina. Mark is not only a resident of Playa Vista, and he is a early morning warrior in the fitness center at the resort, but he is the founder of Winning EQ. And I, I just love this. Winning EQ's philosophy is it's awesome. Better people equals better performance in sports, business, and life. And uh, Mark's a, he's a former professional rugby player who, who faced adversity. He had a career-ending injury that it forced him into retirement from a, a top-level sport. And Mark was faced with the very real challenge that a lot of athletes and individuals go through of transitioning into the next phase without suffering the repercussions that so many athletes succumb to. And after two decades of elite-level sport, combined with extensive study in EQ and leadership mastery, Mark created Winning EQ as a platform to educate and inspire people to better know themselves and achieve excellence in all aspects of life. And I think after that bio and that little history on Mark, you can understand why I'm super excited to welcome Mark to the Elevate Yourself podcast. Mark, thanks so much for being with us today. Rob, are you kidding? You're excited. I'm excited. I think I'm more <laughs> excited. Like I said, any opportunity to tell my story and inspire others, I'm always grateful for, buddy. So thank you. Well, awesome. Well, well, thanks for being with us. We, we, I, I shared some of your backstory there off the top, but um, I'd love to just start with, and this is something that I, I love to ask uh, guests, and I, I, I always start this in the hiring process when I'm interviewing an individual. I always say, start at birth and go. Tell us your story. <laughs> do you uh, do you give a time limit with that, or do you, you just, or is that part of the test? Is it like the, yeah, it's a little bit of part of the test because I, I really think that you you if, if somebody just comes back with like a, a, a twenty second answer, you kind of you you get your answer there. No, well, exactly. No, that'll be it'll be. I'll try and keep it to twenty seconds, but uh, yeah, I'll do the edited version. Start at birth, born in Sydney, Australia, as you can probably hear from the accent. And uh, that was in uh, 1976. So do the math, 43 years of age now. And um, I grew up in uh, beautiful southern beaches of Sydney, a place called Cronulla. So anybody out there listening from the Shire, uh, not from the Lord of the Rings, but the, the Sutherland Shire, that is, that is me. I'm a Shire boy. And um, sport was a big part of my life, obviously, which then led into playing rugby. And uh, rugby from the age of probably five, competitively, and then turned professional after high school at the age of 20. So quite young, straight out of high school, I was doing a university degree at the time. So I was balancing the two. And rugby, actually, the rugby union version, people that know rugby well will know the difference between rugby union and league, but I won't explain it now. But rugby union as a sports code or a football code was not professional until 1996. So I left high school in 94 and uh, it, it actually turned professional in 96. So I was studying at university sports science and that then led me later on into a, a starting a personal training career. But I'll get into that. So started playing rugby in Sydney for a team called the Waratahs, which was part of the super rugby competition. We played against teams in South Africa and New Zealand, and it was provincial rugby. Very tough competition. And as you can imagine, 
three of the best rugby nations in the world split into 12 professional teams. So it was extremely competitive, a lot of fun because it meant that I traveled, traveled the world and, and spent a lot of time in South Africa and New Zealand. Um, and then after five years, uh, I came to a, a fork in the road, I guess. I was offered an opportunity to play rugby in France. And it was a huge opportunity and they paid quite good money over there, but it would mean that I'd have to sort of turn my back on my aspirations of, of playing in Australia and what that meant. And I took it. I thought I'm young enough to, to go over there and experience it. And, and what drove my, uh, what was behind, I guess the motivation behind that choice was that I was looking for a life experience as well, not just rugby accolades. I was looking for an experience to live in a different country and learn a different language and immerse myself. And then, yes, it was risky because it meant that I was kind of removing myself from the system in Australia, but I was also gaining this experience. I took it and as fate would have it, I ended up, that was a two year deal and I ended up staying in Europe and playing all, all over Europe in, in various competitions. I ended up in the UK and then my, my, my rugby career came to an end in Wales. Very big rugby nation over there. I was living in Cardiff uh, for five years total, a four-year deal with the Cardiff Blues. Again, rugby fans will probably know those teams. I was playing in the European competition and the Celtic League. And then on December 6, 2008, a day before my 32nd birthday, playing in a rugby match against Toulouse, one of the European giants of rugby in, in France, actually at their home ground as well. So I was in Toulouse in France playing and I broke my neck attempting a tackle. And three, three guys landed on my head in an awkward position and basically woke up the next day on my birthday in hospital. Um, with fortunately I regained feeling because I was paralyzed from the neck down for 25 minutes on the rugby field and waiting for an ambulance 25 of the scariest minutes of my life and fortunately I, I, I woke up after a successful surgery five days later walked out of hospital and my new life began obviously my rugby career ended and now it was time to reinvent myself and recover from not just the injury but the psychological and emotional trauma of that and also what am I going to do with my life so I guess that was the pivotal moment of my life that was a defining moment that's led me now to where I am so embarked on a personal growth journey emotional intelligence became a passion of mine which then led to what I've started up today called uh, winning EQ EQ uh, otherwise known as emotional intelligence or EI and fascinated with that topic. And it, it really helped me get through that difficult period of my life, Rob. And now I found my purpose, the meaning behind, you know, why I get up in the morning is to inspire others. Always enjoyed inspiring others and teaching and learning myself. And now here's an opportunity to give back and use my story and what I've learned also in the 12 years of professional rugby in terms of leadership. So that is what Winning EQ is. I, I started off helping other professional athletes or high-level athletes with their transition because it's extremely tough. There's, there's a high incidence of anxiety, depression, and suicide in elite athletes, much of which is not documented. But as I dug deeper, I found just how big the problem is. So I use that as motivation to start this platform. And it's actually, I've, there's a lot of transferable skills that, that into, into the business world. So I've also, I also work with companies, executives, uh, other leaders within companies to help them elevate and be the best leaders that they can be, all based on emotional intelligence learning. Done. I know that wasn't 20 seconds, but... <laughs> that's that, pretty much it that that was absolutely fabulous and thank you so much for, for sharing that story um a lot for us to unpack there um sure. I, I i would love to go back and i, I would love to just kind of start at the beginning and kind of talk about um sydney and rugby at five years old and kind of what the what your upbringing was and uh specifically talking about 
um, rugby and those principles that you learned at a young age. I, I'm curious, you know, I, I don't know if I've shared this with you before. I, I spent five years in England from the time I was five until I was 10. Um, and during that period, I, I played rugby and cricket. And the, the discipline that I learned in those sports at a young age, I know have carried on with me today. So sure. um, let's, can we start there and just kind of share what that was like for you as a kid? Of course. As I mentioned, Australia in general is a, is a big sporting nation. So if it's not rugby, it's, and I actually did track as a kid as well. We called it little athletics. And that complemented my rugby too. It, 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 training for, for track or little athletics helped with, uh, with rugby training. But it, it, I mean, back then, I think things have changed. Uh, but back then, as, and Australians got a very kind of tough uh, culture. It's like, um, yeah, it's, it's sort of suck it up and, and, and play, play your sport and, and, and competitive attitude. And you see it in, in all sports and Australians are known for just for their grit and competitive nature and, and always being able to, to just get the job done, if you know what I mean. And that started at a, at a young age because rugby at five or six years old was pretty much full contact. Right. So you can imagine, and that, that's changed over the years with, with the science coming out and, and concussions and uh, modifying the rules of, of, of contact sports like rugby to be safer for the kids that are playing, especially the technique involved and necessary to, to be safe. But not then. I was, I was doing full tackles as a five or six-year-old. So what that does already, that, that creates a... Uh, a toughness and a mental toughness and physical toughness and also a bravery of sorts from a young age as well in terms of putting yourself in front of physical harm. But the, the, the sport itself, being in a team sport, so yes, I did track, I did swimming. You could consider those individual sports for the most part. It was the team sport aspect that I think I really gravitated to and, and helped shape. I talked about emotional intelligence and we will unpack that more, but that started from a young age, being able to work in a team, being able to understand and interact socially with your teammates and try and get the best out of each other started very young. And on top of that, and Rob, you said you played rugby cricket as well in England it's universal. So globally, rugby is known as what I'm extremely proud to be a part of the rugby community and the rugby world because it has very unique values. It has values of, of honour, integrity, camaraderie, teamwork, fairness. You, that's taught at a young age in rugby. And I'll, I'll just, I'll, I always use this, this kind of like example of why rugby, when you compare it to other sports around the world, those principles and values specifically uh, extend to the fans of rugby. You could go to a rugby stadium of 80,000 people and all the rugby fans from, from the opposing teams will be sat together and quite often arm in arm, singing, uh, having a drink afterwards. There's, a, there's that, that value of togetherness that is so unique, especially in a contact sport. Um, so I, I like to kind of, you know, whenever I talk about rugby, especially to, to parents, I've been rugby coaching for, for a time here in the US as well. And, uh, I highly recommend if, if parents are, are worried about their kids playing football or contact sports, rugby is actually safer than you think, but the main thing you'll get out of it is, are the values and the teamwork that, that rugby provides. I, I, I love that. And I, I love the three things that you, you talked about there, the honor, the integrity, the fairness. And there, there really is a, um, a beauty uh, to rugby, isn't it? That everybody is working in unison. Yes. That ability. And there's this unspoken um, language and the ability to, to send a pass um, to a teammate that you just know is going to be there. There's almost, there's a dance to it. There's a musicality to it almost, I feel like. And that's kind of that togetherness you're talking about, right? Well, it is. And, and I, again, I would just want to make the point that it extends beyond the field as well. That's what's beautiful about it. It's not just about the, the game itself when it's happening and the winning of that game and what's required to win. It's then the entire experience of 
then it extends to off the field. Now you have an opportunity to mix with the players that you you basically were just bashing up right. for 80 minutes and being bashed by. Now we come together. And, and the example that I'll give as well is it, it extends then to the fans. The fans know there's like a code, there's an unwritten kind of understanding that we are special. The rugby community is special. And I'll go back to that 80,000 seat stadium. You could have... So I think about football, right? So you have the extra point after a touchdown right. uh, from the you know the field the field goal kicker. He'll he'll attempt the kick and you'll get the extra point if it goes through. Think of if if that's in a stadium that that is the opposing team's stadium that's hosting it, and the fans behind that those uprights they are doing everything possible to put off that kicker to miss the kick, right? It's, right? it's the screaming, it's the little wiggly things that they wave, same as free throwers in basketball. Right. As much noise as possible to put that kicker off. Rugby is the opposite. So even if you're in the opposing team's stadium, it doesn't matter if it's the home team attempting a kick at goal or the away team's kicker, it will be completely silent. Because that is an unwritten... Can you imagine 80,000 people completely silent? It's eerie. And that's why I never wanted to be a goal kicker. I'm like, I can't, I can't handle that kind of pressure. I'd rather there be noise. To have, you could hear a pin drop in a stadium of 80,000 people. And people just know that's what we do. That is rugby. That's the fairness. It's let's be fair to the opposition as well as to our own players. Because... That is the community that we're part of. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? And that's, that's, that's a, a, especially in, in, in the United Kingdom. Sometimes you go to France and no, they like to whistle a bit here and there and that they'll, you know, they'll employ different tactics. But the UK and England specifically is the home of rugby. So that is where the values and principles were born and that is where it is protected and upheld the, the strongest was you talked about 1996 and being 20 years old and mm -hmm. was that the, was that the ultimate goal for you like growing up was that i'm going to be a professional rugby player or did it just kind of happen oh that's a great question i i would say yes and, and again without getting too much into the sort of semantics rugby league is another version of rugby and rugby league at the time, especially in Australia, it was professional. Slightly different rules, same shape ball. Uh, there's 13 players on each team as opposed to 15. Like I said, the changes were very subtle. It was rugby, but it was a different kind. But it had been professional for, for nearly 80 years and traditionally played by working class. Um, I grew up watching that, wanting to be... Uh, certain players that were in that that were high-profile players and I would go to my local rugby league professional matches and dream of being part of that. What was interesting is as I approached adulthood, uh, I started playing both versions because I went to a high school. Now remember, rugby traditionally was not professional, but it was played in private schools. That's why you see a lot of rugby played in colleges over here in the U.S., because it came from the private schools in England. It was, it was created at a private school in the town of Rugby. Rugby, right. Right, in England. Yep. And in 1823. So that then naturally spread throughout the private schools of England and then into <clears throat> private schools of Australia and other Commonwealth countries. And it's a stereotype, but think of the kind of the education, the highly educated people normally that play rugby and then it goes on to university and a lot of rugby players at the international level it wasn't they weren't getting paid most of them were, were doctors and lawyers and whatever kind of course that they studied in university they went on to pursue that career so it was it, it had this stereotype of of highly professional in other areas and and intelligent people whereas rugby league kids were getting plucked out of school at 15 to become professional not necessarily carrying on with their education and, and then just getting paid money and, and now they play professionally. And I got to the point where I was playing both. And then rugby started, the appeal of rugby I was starting to be drawn to. And it wasn't professional at the time. And I thought, you know, instead of, I had the opportunity to go and play rugby league professionally straight out of school, 
I was, I was offered seven or eight different deals from professional clubs. And yet I had just been on a rugby, a schoolboy rugby tour around the UK and France for eight weeks. Now that is something that rugby league did not, never offered me, never offered me. Uh, and, and it wouldn't probably offer me if I played professionally. I might travel around the country playing, but you know, I'm getting paid to play. Whereas, and, and you don't normally, it doesn't normally lend itself to being able to study as well and focus on studies. It would just be, you are a professional, we own you, you know, we'll pay you, but now this is your, your career as opposed to rugby's very global and it's not professional, but I can go and study university at university as well and still play this game and travel the world. And as I was leaving school in 1994, there were talks of it becoming professional. So I, I need to add that because it's like, I either go and be professional straight away in rugby league, a, right. a sport I already know how to play, or I, I go to university and I have faith that one day rugby will turn, rugby union will turn professional. And then I get to travel the world with rugby and get paid. And sure enough, in 1996, that's what happened. It, came, it, it, it became professional. And I was in a really good position to be offered a contract um, because I was in the system. So wow. that, that's, that's, that so was that's, my thought process. Got it. And so you had to have that leap of faith in yeah. yourself and then also have the leap of faith in kind of seeing the, reading the tea leaves of like, this is where it's going to go and that I'm going to start my education, have that experience and then go rugby professional. Yes. And, and the bigger picture being, listen, I, my dreams of being a rugby league player and being on the TV and being uh, paid a lot of money was now that, that motivation was starting to change right. because, and, and, and I come back to that rugby tour of, of 1994, my final year of school, it was representing the Australian schools. And again, a very proud tradition. They traveled to the UK every four years and they did an eight week. I mean, for, for an 18 year old to travel, it's, it's huge. And it really opened my eyes. It opened my eyes to the world. It opened my eyes to the sport of rugby. Uh, and that did it for me. That was like, okay, now when I weigh the two up, there's way more uh, opportunity, not just financially. There's, there's actually wasn't financially as much as rugby league. So that was, that was the big point in all of this was I started to see there was something more. There was something bigger out there for me than just what I dreamed of as a kid. And that was just getting paid money to play a sport. It's amazing foresight. And I think a lot of 18 year olds may not have had that in them. Um, so you, so you, you go to France in 96 and you, you took it, took the opportunity. It sounds amazing to be 20 years old in, in France and playing rugby. Um, what was that experience like? And what were some of those life experiences that you uh, learned at 20, year, 20 years old in France? Okay, so just to correct you, because I know yep. my, uh, my, my initial explanation <laughs> was quick <laughs> and a lot of information. So I started, I, I played in Sydney uh, in, in the Super Rugby competition for, for five years. Okay. So it wasn't until I was 24, I think I might have just turned 25, um, okay. that, that then I, I'm, I'm at the kind of like the, the pinnacle of my career in, in Australia, looking at um, uh, the, the big thing about playing what everyone's, what everyone's aspiring to is to play in a Rugby World Cup. And it's extremely competitive. I hadn't played in a Rugby World Cup. I hadn't been uh, selected yet for the full Australian national team to go to the World Cup. It was coming into a World Cup year. I was in the mix, but there was a lot of competition, a lot of things going on. And um, at that moment, I was offered a deal to play in Europe. And, and, and just to give it some context, in Europe, especially in France, they have their own rules of how many foreigners they're allowed to, to select and right. have in their squad. Right, right, and right. and it, was only, it was only two. One of them, the spots was already taken. So they normally reserve these spots for very high profile uh, rugby players in, in different countries. And I'd had a good enough rugby season that year with my, with my Sydney team for them to, to be on their radar, for them to offer me a contract. So at 24, it was like, mm, 
I'm coming into a World Cup year. Yep. Do I stay here and and pursue that and and make my way into the national team and get a get World Cup experience, um, which will possibly live with me for the rest of my life, or do I take this opportunity right now because this may not come around again? Do you see what I mean? So it was I like, do. and that again, I was. I had to make a similar decision to when I finished high school. It's like, do I go for the money and what I've always wanted to do as a kid or thought I wanted to do? Or do I, do I go for this other thing that just has way more? So the allure of playing and living in another country, learning another language, getting life experience in that way that rugby was offering me, even though I was giving up something else, accolades, uh, other things that, that representing my country at a World Cup might have brought around. I went for the, the, the French experience. And again, no regrets. No regrets at all. I never, as a result, I stayed in Europe and I was never to play in Australia or for Australia ever again. Uh, but the thing that what I gained from that experience is, is and I probably wouldn't be sitting here, I'd say, say that but sitting here talking about what I'm talking about right now um just the journey that then that took me on the path that I chose to to pursue that instead of just staying put and um trying to play in a world cup right and so that decision to go travel to have those experiences to go on that journey right then that leads us into December 6 2008 Yes. So before we get into that moment, though, I think so. You're 32 years old. Mm-hmm. How 31. were you? 31. How were you feeling? Um, just in general, at this point in your career, you'd been playing professionally now in this area in Europe, right? For yeah. five, six years. Um, I guess give us the lead up in terms of coming into that before your birthday and yeah okay yeah another great question so uh, that now obviously at 31 not as fast as i used to be not as you know the body's taken a beating so and and you know emotionally and mentally it's it's a tough grind year on year and and not just the physicality uh that's required uh the mental toughness that's required there's also the emotional side of, of being part of a, a rugby team or a club uh, or a professional team that, um, you know, I have, to, I have to endure and, and I guess endure is the right word. Year on year, if you're lucky enough to sign two years, it's very rare to sign longer than two-year deals in the, in, the sport and, and in the sport of rugby. So, you know, my contract was coming up again. So every time it's contract time, it's, a, it's an extremely stressful time. Right. And, and not just that, but every week is selection time. So week on week, that, that uh, potential rejection uh, sort of scenario where it's like trying to make the team, trying to make the team. Now we've got young kids coming through and now they're being looked at. My body's starting to fail me a little bit. I've already had seven surgeries to my body and one of them, uh, two of them major shoulder surgeries. So to answer your question, coming into that uh, final year uh, and, then, and then it's like, all right, I'm starting to think of where do I want to be after this? Do I renegotiate and play at the same club? Or do I look abroad and maybe there's an experience I haven't had, such as Japan, uh, maybe somewhere else that, that could be a good life experience for me. Again, at that stage, it wasn't necessarily about the money. It was more about, obviously, I'd like to keep making money to, to, to live off and, and it doesn't have to be exorbitant, but uh, it's got to be somewhere I want to live again for the life experience. So I was already, I was already coming to the end of my career. I thought maybe I've got two more seasons at this level of rugby left in me. And then it was in my mind already that then I want to move on to, on my terms, whatever that may be. But I hadn't really formed what that looked like uh, because I was still looking at another couple of years at this level of rugby. And, um, and then it was, the decision was made for me, obviously, on, uh, on December 6th. And so um, talk us through um, just the experience of 
the play itself, mm-hmm. what happened, and then being in a hospital in another country, family, all of that. Uh, just tell us that whole whole experience on. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, so I and and for I me, mean, it's quite vivid. Yeah. And um, even though it was ten years ago now, I, it was a TV match. It was a big European tele, televised match. So I have the video footage uh, edited, and they've got you know six yeah. different angles of when it happens, slow motion. So if ever I need to kind of go back to that moment, I can. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I actually, I actually do. We'll talk about that a little more later. Um, yeah. But at the time, it was, here's what's funny, Rob, and I, we can make whatever meaning we want out of this, but I was actually sick uh, with like gastroenteritis. Um, not to be too graphic, but it, it meant that I was, you know, things were coming out of uh, both ends of me and, and really I'd, I'd lost like, I think, seven pounds overnight. Uh, going into the match. Going into the match. So, oh, so there, was, there was a, I couldn't keep anything down. And we were, or because we left Wales to go to France a couple of days earlier, so we can get there and get settled in. It was it was a big game, and I had enough time. I guess that started right when we arrived, and then I had enough time to kind of for the for the doctor to keep an eye on me. And she's like, "Well, all right, let me know how you feel tomorrow." And then it's game day. It's like overnight. I'm still not. I can barely keep anything down. I've lost all this weight. I feel I've, I'm lacking energy, and she's like. In the morning, we need to make a decision. So in the morning, basically, I could, I, could, I could now hold down a piece of toast. That was about it. She was obviously worried about me as our team doctor. And she said to me, look, I, I don't have the authority. I, I, I can recommend that you don't play. I recommend that you don't play. But the call is yours. And me being, you know, who I am and this right. sort of like, I don't want to let the team down and no, I'll be fine. Like the, the kickoff is in another seven hours. I'll be good by then. Cause I already started to see myself turn toward, you know, the better make a turn and, and started to, I've got some color back in my face. Um, anyway, so going into that match, I was already probably not supposed to play. And I ended up playing and, and the adrenaline just just pumped me up and go remember I'm going out there feeling lighter and and, and not with a, a lot of energy. Not to say that that caused the injury, but already I went in under those circumstances. And then it happened right, uh, I think, five minutes into the second half and, and, and we were looking good and I was feeling good. In fact, I said to the, <laughs> there's another thing, I said to the doctor, I said, look, just give me a half. If I can, if I can contribute to the team with a heart, like that's what I anticipated. I would only have a half in me, energy-wise, anyway. So I'll do what I can for forty minutes, and then you know, let's assess at halftime. But let's, in my mind, I'm like, I'm going hard for forty minutes, and then someone, and then they bring on the young kid afterwards to kind of bring it home. <clears throat> and I get it was close. These are the European champions. We were written off as underdogs, and we were never. And we, well, I think it was like. Seven points in the match. One one touchdown. You call it in American football, but one you know one try in it. We're in we're very much in the in the match, and we look at it maybe upsetting. So I'm not. There's no way I'm staying off the field. No. Five minutes into the second half, it happened. It was very innocuous. It was accidental. It wasn't as a result of foul play at all. It was just it was just poor technique and, and um, got caught tackling uh, one of their players bringing him down like a judo roll, if you can imagine. My feet came from underneath me. So now I'm, I'm kind of like in a seated position on the ground with this player kind of in, like with my head tucked in. The problem was two of my players came over and hit him at the same time from a sideways angle. And what happened is they hit him so that he fell on top of me with their weight as well. So three big rugby players landing on the top of my head, forcing my, my forehead, my head through, like down in between my knees while I'm seated, if you can imagine. I heard the crack. I felt the crack. I let out a little squeal. And then that moment on was everything happened so fast and the adrenaline's pumping. So I'm lying and there's a pile of bodies, which is normal for rugby. And then once the pile of bodies kind of like dissipated and got off me, I'm left there trying to get up. And I, at first I'm like, my shoulder, I can't, my, it's, it's just, 
my body's not registering. And, and what happened was my spinal, my central nervous system just shut down because uh, the, the tackle had broken my C4 and C5 vertebrae. It split right through the middle. It squashed the disc and the disc pushed against my spinal cord. And then it just, my central nervous system sensed danger. Amazing thing, the body, as you know. Uh, it's, it's such a miracle that it just said, nope, we're going to stop any movement. But of course, at the time, while I'm lying there and the doctor runs on, she thinks it's my shoulder. She's not sure what's going on. And um, I'm like, I, I, I've got a pain in my neck. I don't, I don't. And as soon as I said that, she, she started squeezing my hand and says, does this hurt? Does this hurt? And I said, does what hurt? Didn't even feel it. I couldn't feel a thing. And at that moment, she looks over to the sideline to the other medical staff and she starts waving frantically, <laughs> to him, which yeah. probably didn't help my, my anxiety levels. I mean, I started going into shock at that yeah, stage. Yeah. But I was completely conscious because I wasn't knocked out. I knew I, I was completely conscious for the entire thing. And she, she sat with me the whole time. She, she obviously, and then they went into the protocol of, of suspected spinal injury. So they had seven people, you know, two holding my neck and head in place. And then they had to, the, the entire process, they, sh they stopped the game. The referee stopped it. Whenever there's a serious injury, that's what they do. And uh, for 10 minutes, it, it took them to, to then put me onto a gurney or a stretcher and then take me off the field. And uh, that entire time, I'm completely paralyzed from the neck down. I can't feel a thing. All sorts of thoughts are rushing in and out of my head. Positive thoughts and negative thoughts, fearful thoughts, uh, Thoughts of optimism. It was crazy what was going on inside my head right then, Rob. And I actually, I, I use that today as, as motivation <laughs> yeah. in, in many ways. And then, and then when the, um, and here's again the big moment that I also bring myself to in terms of gratitude and relief. The profound relief of taking me from the stretcher to the ambulance bed, the trolley that they brought in, they un flipped the, uh, you know, strapped in with ankle straps and uh, a harness. And when they were undoing that, I guess it whipped my foot. It whipped my toe and I flinched. And I said, oh. And then that moment, I'm like, I just moved my toe. Oh, that's like, good. This I is just, a win. Yeah. This, is, this isn't just good. This is a win. It's, it's incredible what, because I've been able to kind of focus on the what if and if i'm paralyzed this is what it means it's a it, this is a quadriplegic if my both my arms and my legs aren't like i've really analyzed what what life had for me in store right now as soon as i could move my toe i knew that that meant i'm not just a quadriplegic i'm not a paraplegic either and i will recover from this it was instant like i'm going to be fine I can tell you now there was no fear about the, the surgery. I knew I was going, I was rushing off to hospital, but I just, now I know that I can feel my foot. I'm going to recover. Isn't that, isn't that, and just, I just knew, I just yeah. knew. And that's, that's amazing to have the, the awareness of your body. And I, I think that being an athlete, you have that, right? Cause you're super, we're super in tuned to every little thing or every little, just kind of little, whatever it is, right? The calf's kind of barking at you. You're aware of it. But that, oh, that is totally. remarkable totally. to have that awareness in that moment. Well, and, and, and so many injuries, as you know, you know, I've had – and having to deal with injury and then having to deal with the recovery from that injury, you just get to know your body so well. I, I could I – could, I'd get a strain in my calf muscle yeah. uh, that was enough for me to have to – stop training and stop playing and I could I could pinpoint how long I would need like I'd be like mm, that's a that's a four-week injury and sure enough and there's probably the power of intention behind that as well and just in just knowing knowing my body and being in tune but this was uncharted territory you know neck the neck injury that's that's why there was a, a bit of uncertainty and fear around that but in terms of like all I need to know now is that I'm not paralyzed and I'll take care of the rest because I've done it before. I've done it with my shoulder. I've spent an entire season out with a, a shoulder reconstruction. I know the discipline and the will and, and I know what it takes to come back from injury. So I'll do the same with this as well. Mark, it's really remarkable to have, like I said, to have that self-concept clarity in that moment. And I, I really have to believe that that kind of goes back to the grit you talked about at the beginning and that discipline as a child. 
because mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people listening to this and maybe myself included to be in that situation and to just want to quit. Right. And to just, and, but to already have that thought to go, I am, I'm okay. I'm good. I'm going to figure this out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, it, it starts yeah, young. It does start young. But what we can also maybe dive into is that also has its down, down points. That has its liabilities. If we, now we kind of, and that's what yeah. I've learned since, since retiring and, and, and working with other athletes that also retire, that grit, that suck it up, that toughen up, harden up and get through it, you can do it and you can do it alone. That also develops a, um, I guess now what you're doing is, is you're, you're, if, if there's any emotional struggle for whatever reason, you tend to also apply that and not want to ask for help. That's, right. a totally, that's another subject and that could maybe lead that's, us I into think, the emotional I think, side. I think that's right. So let's get into the emotional intelligence thing, but that's a great point. And I was thinking about that when you talked about the, the playing through it. Um, we, I just did an exercise with, with my team on um, uh, elite performance behaviors. Mm-hmm. And one of those categories is grit. And yeah. there is a very interesting um, correlation between those individuals and myself included on this. Those that score particularly high on grit typically score lower on things like recovery and restorative and those other things right so if your grit is too hard and you go i'll just push it i'll just suck it up yeah. right then we start seeing the stressors coming in to other facets of um performance exactly exactly um, and there's something there's something innately satisfying about when we display that grit right so it's that there is something kind of satisfying with the discipline involved and actually getting through something alone and coming out the other side and 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 we all sometimes we get motivated by that and as you said when it when it comes to the extreme the benefits that we get from that start to get in the way of actually what we really need to do and, and that's listen to our need for recovery and maybe our need to kind of get support from other areas because we're so focused on the benefits of of displaying grit and getting through something that we take it to the extreme so emotional intelligence Uh um talk to me about that and then talk to me about kind of um the big roadblocks that you see in athletes and those in business and leadership i mean i think we're talking about in particular, and I think this goes to everybody, but we're talking about elite individuals, right? To, to own a company, you're uh, to be the CEO, or if you're in leadership, um, you're certainly at the the upper end of your field. Um, the same with athletes. Um, what are kind of the big roadblocks you see, and then how does the emotional intelligence play a role in that? Yeah. So, and I, it's not just about the the high level. Um, obviously, they're they're a special kind that the CEO. You just see. What's interesting is I work with all leadership levels, and when we talk about some of the roadblocks, uh, I mean, dealing with the ego mm. is probably the biggest element of emotional intelligence that I think is is the, is the key to unlocking a lot of uh, performance issues. Uh, and just overall uh, general emotional wellness issues is is that having a better relationship with your ego. And for me, that started when I finished playing rugby, when I had to reflect and I had to redesign my life and look at what was ahead. Obviously, had to focus on who I was leading up to that moment, and and really like what what enabled me to achieve what I achieved is. What are, the, what are the benefits of that and the strengths of that moving forward? But also, what are the liabilities of now this next step? Was I, was I really playing rugby for the right reasons? Because what I'm searching for now is meaning and my purpose and what I have to offer life. Being attached to the identity of a rugby player was the hardest thing to detach from, which is what a lot of athletes experience. And a lot of the depression and anxiety comes from that because it's like, that's what I did for so long. And that's who I am. But that's not who you are. 
and and that's like I said then then that's a conversation about ego let's understand what ego is and we won't get too too much into it but that it, it rears its head in so many different situations a big roadblock for CEOs and and leaders of companies is exactly that is that they don't they're not necessarily open to receiving certain kinds of coaching and and betterment because they've already achieved what they've achieved and their ego uh, does not necessarily want to believe that they still need improvement and, and could use coaching and can use uh, and, and, and then reluctant to empower the people underneath them, their staff, their employees. So that's kind of a big roadblock for that level of leader in business. I, I actually like working with the middle management, the, the, the people that have been newly promoted into leadership roles who aren't used to being leaders and now they're being called forth to be a leader. And that's a roadblock as well of, of the, 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 the other side of the ego then is that the other side of like, then they've got to trust themselves. There is absolutely that there is trusting themselves. Um, but also specifically if we're talking about the ego, um, and, and taking things personally and being attached to certain things and making a meaning of it, looking at things as this is who I am and this is what it means about me. And what I mean by that is, and there's so many situations daily where that comes up, giving and receiving feedback is a huge part of performance, as you know, Rob. You know, with your clients, you're constantly giving feedback on corrections of form. And when it comes about mindset and habit, sometimes as coaches, we need to interrupt their thought patterns and and normally it's rooted in them and their ego normally it's it's because if they're given feedback they take that on board and they take it personally right. so they take that on board as like oh that means i'm i'm not good enough because i'm being told to do it a different way or um that means i'm a failure or i'm not a good person as opposed to being open and just seeing feedback as information. So this is at all levels. I love the topic of feedback. If you have a growth mindset, feedback is crucial. Feedback's crucial in life in order to grow and get better. The problems arise and the roadblocks arise when we, there is a resistance to receiving feedback. And we, we tend to make it personal and therefore the feedback doesn't land as information that we need or don't need. Like we just being able to look at the feedback as information is important in, in growth. And then on the other side of that, it's being able to deliver that feedback. And that's a big problem that newly kind of appointed leaders within companies, they have that, that trouble as well is, is delivering now feedback to their friends and their colleagues that they used to work alongside. And now since their promotion, now they kind of, you know, now they're the boss of those people in a way. And that people struggle with that. So it's a big topic of like giving and receiving feedback, but that's where the ego kind of gets involved the most. And, and I do a lot of coaching in being able to not attach meaning to any of that information and make it mean anything about yourself as a person. It's just information. And an opportunity, which I love, right? An so opportunity. You, you create that. It's an opportunity. Okay, great. Right. And so if you turn it and go, how awesome, I'm getting this awesome opportunity of feedback to get better as opposed to this person's attacking me. But that is, that's, it's challenging, especially when people feel vulnerable or in a situation where maybe they don't have the uh, confidence of, um, well, exactly. And, and it, but it, it, again, we can go back and it, that starts with the choice, the decision to have a growth mindset, to just know that this is the person that I, I want to be. These are the character traits that I'd like to develop, that I know if I develop, I'll achieve what I want in my life, in this position, in my relationships, in whatever it may be. So it starts with a conscious choice to be, you know what, every step of the way, and it's a practice. Keep coming back to, I'm committed to growing. I'm committed to being a better person. I'm committed to elevating every day. So having said that and being connected to that, 
then I get to take that feedback as information. So it's, it's a practice. It's constantly reminding ourselves of, I made a commitment to myself to, to grow and actually invite feedback. So here, as you said, Rob, so here's the opportunity. Someone is giving me an opportunity to grow. Thank you. To see feedback as a gift, right? Not as a criticism. See it as a gift I'm giving. That, and, and that helps you deliver feedback to people as well. It's interesting. Yeah. As you say, when you talk about feedback to individuals, there have been lots of studies on this and that an individual would rather you, uh, a lot of times I think as leaders, we think that an an individual would rather a sandwich it, right? So you go, you're doing (laughs) such a great job, but, oh, I still think you're doing a great job. But really what people want is they would rather you not give them to them in a sandwich. Um, They would rather just hear it um, instead of avoiding. That's right. And, and again, there's a lot of factors that feed into that in particular. What kind of relationship and trust have you built with that person? It looks wow. different in different ways. So, so that's, you got to be mindful of that too, is like, where am I with this person in terms of trust? Have I built enough trust that I don't need to deliver the sandwich? They know in me, I've already proven to them that I am here for them. I'm, I want, I, I'm coming from love and just wanting this person to elevate. And whenever I deliver feedback, uh, and it might it might need a discussion. It might there might be a, a feedback session that's just like, hey, let's discuss what feedback means when I give it. Here's here's what it means, just so you know. So then you can just get to the nitty gritty. And as you know, when we respect people more when they're willing to give the feedback, and there are obviously more effective ways to give it the language you use you need to understand also the personality type of that other person but when it comes down to it be courageous deliver it in the way you need to deliver it but make sure you deliver it and it's clear and stop worrying about if you're going to hurt that person's feelings or if they're going to not like what they're hearing and therefore not like you people like myself that are recovering people pleasers yeah I, I for, for the longest time, and that holds me back as being an effective coach, is when I'm more worried about hurting the other person's feelings and them not liking me, and that comes from my childhood. There's a conditioning there where I, I just had this need to be accepted by people. We won't go into that. But understanding that, that's what I mean by emotional intelligence and self-awareness. Now that I understand that, I understand that that holds me back as a coach. i got to deliver that feedback. It's a gift. And who am I to hold back that gift to that person? I'm making that more about me right now than making it about them. So step up, be a courageous coach, and let the person give, deliver that gift and deliver it in a way that they might not like hearing it, but they're going to respect it and it's going to land for them and it's going to make them better. I, I love, I want to just hit on what you talked about, about mm-hmm. each person's different, right? I, I'm paraphrasing on this, but John Wooden, who um, I coach. consider to be one of the greatest coaches and teachers, really, yep. of all time, he, he says, uh, the good Lord and in his infinite wisdom didn't make us all look the same. Why would I coach each person the same, right? And it's that you really have to teach and coach each individual different. Um, you can't treat all talent the same because all talent is different, right? Well, you can't, and, and, and that just goes to show that he sees them as a person first, right. right? Not just the athlete. And that's what we mean by emotional intelligence. That's why I'm just, I love the study of emotional intelligence and how it relates to performance. Coaches like Wooden, coaches like Vince Lombardi, you know, it was about, and that, as you mentioned in, in my intro, thank you very much for that, but that is, my, that is a, a motto. That is what, a belief of winning EQ is it's like, Better people make better athletes. Better people make better performers. And start with the person first. Get to know them. Meet them where they are. Really, truly see them and and make sure that they know you see them. And that will, now we talk about feedback, that will help that feedback land. It will help you deliver it in the appropriate way that suits that person's language, but it will also make them feel seen as a human and loved as a human and then that will translate into better performance, especially in team sports. Is there a, um, we're talking about togetherness and um, that sense of team in, in, in companies. I, I've experienced this um, of when leaders are vulnerable, 
the team innately trusts more. Would you agree with that? Is that something that you work with leaders on of, of sharing uh, vulnerability um, and letting your team see you? Constantly, constantly. Right. Uh, that is huge with regards to, I'm often telling people, especially leaders, um, because it is, it is effective in developing trust. And when leaders such as, you know, business leaders, uh, coaches, when, um, when they are encouraging vulnerability from their employees or their players or their athletes because they understand the benefits of being vulnerable in terms of building trust with other team members, then you've got to do it yourself. People are only willing to go as far as you're willing to go yourself. Right. Yeah. That's what you mean by if you want people to be vulnerable, then you've got to show your vulnerability and then they, it will, it, then it gives them permission. So again, when you're outwardly focused, when you're like, I'm trying to elevate these, my, my people, right? I'm trying to bring them to a level where I know this will make them better people and better performers and vulnerability is a great way to do that, you know, and, and, and it will develop trust in the team environment. So guess what? How can I be vulnerable to give them permission to do the same? We're getting a little bit, we're running a little short on time, but I, I, I would love for you oh. to just share with us. Um, obviously we're going through a, something that none of us have experienced in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, I talked to my grandmother and she doesn't even, um, this is unlike even like the first world war. Um, talk, to our listeners about that are going through this time of um, unprecedented uncertainty and things that an individual could do at home yeah. um, to make sure that they are um, stepping up um, and continuing to work on themselves right now. Yeah. Look, I'll start from, from the very first thing, if they haven't done this already, and really check in with themselves if they've completely done this 100%, and that is practicing acceptance. This is the new normal. This is happening. Uh, and I don't necessarily like this term. It is what it is. But, but if, if you can just fully accept what is happening right now all around us and in, in many areas of our life, of like this is a situation, even accept the fact that it's uncertain times and get comfortable with that then that drops a lot of the resistance we have to what's going on around us. When we drop the resistance to what's going on and we just accept, now that's the best platform to step into being the best person that we can be. It, it, we talk about roadblocks. You know, that's a huge roadblock if you don't just accept what's going on. So that is the first step. And, and, and listen, you ask what people can do as a first step. Um, to help them with acceptance, read a book or listen to the book from Ryan Holiday. I don't know if you know, if you're familiar with this author, love his work. And he, he studies the Roman Stoic philosophers and then he translates it into kind of modern day. And there's a book of his called the obstacle is the way. The way. You I, yes, yes, yes. I love that. I love read, that. Yes. So read it. Uh, uh, listeners, viewers, read that book. Actually, if you, if you haven't got time to read all of it, which I, I highly doubt you don't have the time, but, uh, <laughs> but, but there's also, there's a wonderful app called Blinkist. And um, Blinkist is, 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 it takes audio books um, and, and, and digital books and it gives a 15 to 20 minute synopsis. It just covers the book with, they call them blinks. So it takes little excerpts and it explains the book in the most, uh, I guess, the, the, the most important uh, points that, that help explain what the book is. So go on Blinkist, go to Ryan Holiday, yeah. The Obstacle is the Way, and it, it'll just really help you gain perspective of what's going on and, and acceptance and then again give you the opportunity, or the opportunity, give you the mindset to find the opportunities in, in, in the disruption. That's really what it is. You said you got to drop the resistance. And I, I think, I mean, I, I think that, I think about that when I was training for the Los Angeles marathon, right? Yeah. I, you get going and the minute I'm going, this is going to hurt all of those things. The minute that you can drop that and go, 
I'm dropping this resistance, accept that it's going to hurt. Don't try to fight it. Yeah. But it's the same thing in this of, of changing what you normally do. You've got to go, no, I, I, I'm not going to get to do that. Okay. So this is what, this is what I, what I can do and how do I make the most of that? Um, Right. Uh, totally right. And again, what if we can take it another step and it might seem crazy to some people and a little masochistic, but it's reframing things. It's this is going to hurt. And isn't that wonderful that my body's going to feel that and then it is going to respond in a, in a way that will build some resilience around that physically so that this would get easier the next time I do it. By putting my body through this pain, I'm, you know, or mentally, it's like I'm showing myself what I'm made of. Imagine what this will do for my confidence in other areas of my life. So it's, again, looking for that opportunity, reframing something that we see as originally a negative and then quickly reframe it and turn it around to be the opportunity to elevate, to get better. So that just, just on that point, um, it's not just I, I hear a lot of people, and this is, with with winning eq i'm developing about to release like a survival guide right so a guide to this particularly this period of un uncertain times and yeah. and i call it survival because it's the word survival comes up initially when we oh this is unprecedented this is weird this is new this is scary this is and and the language that everybody uses around this is a very in a very survival kind of mechanism way so our survival instincts are kicking in such as the hoarding that you see going on yes. with toilet paper right now, right? right? So, yeah, okay, I get it. There's, there's survival instincts. We don't know what's going on. A lot of the language people are using, you, you, I mean, you've probably had it when you check in with friends. It's like, how are you doing? A lot of what comes back to me is, oh, you know, I'm just getting through it or right. uh, doing my best to keep my head above water and, yeah, I'm just trying to, you know, I'm, I'm knuckling down. And uh, that kind of language is like, okay, it's survival. It's just getting by. What if we can take that and add the thriving element? You can actually thrive in this, in this moment. If you reframe things to be like, okay, start with acceptance. This is what's happening right now. Where are the opportunities to thrive? There are so many opportunities to, to look at yourself coming through this to the other side, having elevated as a person, where if this wasn't happening right now, we might not have put the focus on that. It's all, it's, it's, it's all mindset and it is it's changing it to this is an opportunity look at all this time i have oh i can do all these things that i didn't do before um exactly. yeah exactly. and um i i know that when you talk about your moments just to kind of recap everything we've talked about i know that all of your experiences lead you into this moment right now yeah. where this is not as scary to you whereas you are able to view it as an opportunity because you've been through all these other things, right? You go, I, I was paralyzed for 25 minutes. If I can yeah. survive that and come back from that, this is nothing, right? Absolutely. And, and listen, it's not to say that I don't get scared. There's still conditioning there that's a constant practice. I'm breaking through. I have the awareness that I have a tendency sometimes to develop, to get a little scared, to develop a scarcity mindset, right? Which what I mean by that is the, the fear. I mean, finances is a huge one. A, a huge topic of anxiety for people right now is the financial uncertainty. The world is being turned on its head economically and it's affecting a lot of people. So it's, it's not to say that it doesn't come up in me, but yes, thank, thankfully my experiences and my learning and my, my commitment to growth and self-awareness gives me the tools. So it's given me the tools to see the opportunity at hand, to then be able to apply it and practice. It's a constant practice, Rob, as you know, but practice, okay, Here's, I'm feeling a little like this right now. I'm feeling anxious. I'm getting some scarcity conversations right now about my money, right? And then apply the tools that kind of takes me through step by step that it's actually not as scary as you're making it out to be. And, and here's why. So let's revisit that. Let's use the tools. Let's practice. And then it brings me back to that that level of, of calm and presence and clarity that I need to push forward. Just 
just awesome. Um, I, I really, I can't thank you enough uh, for joining us, Mark. And I, I appreciate um, uh, your vulnerability um, and sharing your story. Um, and uh, I know that I'm going to acceptance in all aspects of things I do is uh, it's been a wonderful reminder for me. Um, I would love for you just to share for those listening, um, where can they learn about winning EQ or can they go to learn about you if they wanted to reach out to you, somebody's got a company, they want to bring you in to speak to them, where, where can they learn about you? Sure. Thank you, Rob. And, and thanks for saying that. And again, give me the opportunity to babble on for uh, the best part of an hour and 10 awesome. minutes. Um, we, uh, we, could, we could keep going all day. Yeah. Um, com. Very simple. Uh, winning is, as in W-I-N-N-I-N-G and EQ as in emotionalintelligence.com and everything you you need right there to contact me is there on my website you can have a little browse through see some of the stuff i do and uh, i'd love you to subscribe as well because i'll be i release articles and news and updates on little free programs that i that i offer right now so please subscribe and um and also on instagram you can follow me and my life on yogs life y-o-g-s l-i-f-e and that's a entirely other <laughs> podcast episode maybe you'll get me back to talk yes. about what what yog means young older guy originally uh now it's the young older generation um you need to be 35 and above to be considered a yog i'll just leave it there okay. <laughs> um well we will link to everything winning eq and to mark and to yog's life um on our social media. Um, thank and you, again, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Mark. Um, like you said, it, it was hard to believe that this has been an hour and we, we may need to have you come back for a part two at some point. Cause I, I'll, I, I'll I, think, ready. I think especially in this time, um, everybody's kind of struggling with this and, um, uh, I have no doubt that uh, this information here is, is helpful for. Yeah, I'd love to do that when you're ready. I can we can zero in on you know more specifically these times. Like I said, the survival guide. I can talk you through the three steps. I already talked about the first one, acceptance. The second one is assessment, and then it's action. So we can d dive into those whenever you feel ready. Thank you so much, Mark. And uh, uh, keep keep doing what you are doing um and uh i have no doubt that we will see you back in the resort gym soon look forward to it mate and you too keep doing this this is valuable stuff that we all need so thank you for that